Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected. Good afternoon, Team Crew Lab community. And on behalf of Marie Corps University, the Marie Corps University Foundation, and the Brute Krulak Center for Innovation and Future Warfare, welcome back to the Brutecast, our series designed to connect the worlds of the warfighter and PME with the best innovative and creative thought. I'm your host, Major Ian Brown, Operations Officer at the Krulak Center. So those who followed the Brutecast this season know we've been extremely fortunate in the guests we've been able to put in front of our audience. And today our fortune continues because we get to welcome Sergeant Major Troy Black, the Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps to the program. This is the result of some hard work and coordination between different staffs and the assistant commandant's team definitely deserves our thanks for making the connection that made today possible. And Sergeant Major Black, we also definitely appreciate you taking the time to come down here. And we rarely get to do a live studio audience for the broadcast, so this is a special occasion to have you down here and have some folks around the table to ask questions directly. Okay, all right, with that, Sergeant Major Black, welcome to the broadcast, and I'm happy to let you have any open comments that you wanna share. First of all, I'd like to say thank you, sir, and the opportunity to be able to engage with, with, with whatever the audience is, which I'm assuming is more than six, seven, eight, ten of us that are, that are here. We have about 30 people online. In oh, County. awesome. So that, that's a great opportunity to, to engage. Look forward to the conversation. And uh, I'll leave it there, sir, when we get rolling. Okay. So um, I have a couple questions to kind of kick things off here. And then, again, those in the, in the virtual audience and those here, once we kind of set the preliminaries, feel free to just you know throw your hand up or throw it in the chat, and we'll get through those questions. But to kind of kick things off, this, this is really, this was a direct offshoot of our conversation with General Smith, the Assistant Commandant, um, a couple of weeks ago, talking about talent management 2030 under the Force Design 2030 efforts in the Marine Corps. Um, and his presence was, was, a, was a, a follow on as well from talking to the talent management strategy group that falls under him and is directing talent management for the Commandant. So we've, we're really hitting the talent management piece, but if, what, do you, what do you see from your side as the priorities for talent management 2030, especially for the enlisted force, which is the bulk of the Marine Corps? Yeah, I, I think, uh, sir, first of all, thanks for the question. Uh, along with the ACMAC or, or, or General Smith, I'm, I'm heavily, I don't want to say heavily, but I'm, I'm deeply involved in what the TMX is doing. I'm also involved, curious, I should say, about what MNRA writ large is doing and uh, was able to, to understand and work through the draft and the final the final copy of what talent management 2030 looks like. Having said all that, I think it's pretty interesting to have this specific question uh, at the Brute Krulak Center. You may know why the, what the analogy would be. You wrote a book one time, right? It's called First to Fight, I think, right? Anything to do with talent management or as we see other forces on initiatives has to do with war fighting, period, fighting and winning. I think we also or the audience may or may not know that Training Education Command right now is going through a like sort of turn on how to improve training education, much like we did with talent management or manpower, MNRA at large, the first two years. Uh, they're going to grow So I think that even that even tightens that more about the discussion we're going to have. And that's actually what we do is we train to fight and we win. That that, that is a it's a the bedrock reason that we have a Marine Corps. Um, Anybody's ever read anything about Lieutenant General Brute Krulak, uh, that's what the whole, his whole entire writing history has been about preservation of our core and its warfighting competency. There's nothing different today with talent management, nor forces on the remark. All right, thank you. Um, so kind of moving on, uh, looking, kind of taking the aperture back to the whole Force Design 2030 effort that's underway. We've actually 
so we've had a, a couple of different folks on to the precast to talk about different aspects of force design. We had uh, Colonel Tim Barrick and Colonel Matt Jones both retired talking about some of the, you know, the critiques they've been outlined in recent months about it. But then we also had Major General Donovan and his, uh, his senior Navy advisor from Task Force 61-2 on a couple weeks back to talk about like the practical experimentation that they've been done. And in, in our, a lot of the conversations they focused on, on, um, on sort of concepts and things. So constructs like the Marine Corps Regiment, reconnaissance, counter reconnaissance, investment in platforms, divestment of platforms, weapon systems, programs, a record. A lot of it sort of coalesces around concepts and things. Um, but a, a point that you've always made has been that our strategic, our strategic advantage against our adversary is our people. Why is that the case? I think in the room, maybe even on the, on the outliers, I might be the person that's got the most time in service at this point. At least in this in this audience, definitely present in front of me. So I, I have the benefit of time. And here's what I would offer as a perspective, just operationally and conceptually first. And I'll get to the people thing at, at the end of that. Um, you know, we have this discussion on uh, peer, near peer, depend upon who our our adversary, enemy, whoever we want to, how we want to term that is. Uh, we have a different sort of adversary on the globe right now that we have not had since I was last corporal so in the room i'm the only person who has experience on what a pure adversary looks like with respect to our u.s military i would i would go one further to say there's not been a pure adversary on this planet like we've had now that can that can that is truly an existential threat to the united states across all forms of national power whether it's diplomatic Information might call it intelligence, might call it any, but the I stands for many things now. I think military and economically, primarily economically. There's a lot of studies on it and the economic power of, of China in particular. But one data point that, that always revolves in my mind is the fact that at its height, the Soviet Union produced about 40% of the US GDP. We can argue whether it's today or two or three years from now that China's GDP will surpass. United States. What's the power of that? That's the true power of a nation is its, its economic influence, right? And we see that globally as China has continued to execute its Belt and Road Initiative. We also know that you can buy a pretty good military with all that money. And the time it takes us to produce capabilities, not necessarily develop them, not necessarily have them ready to be produced, but the sheer cost of those things we, we move slower as a nation than does this adversary who, who I may, I make a joke and I've heard it before. So going to figure out how to do it. They're going to 3D print their aircraft carriers and not just build them in sessions, right? Because they put three on the water and less time it's taken us to make one. And they'll speed that production up. So even with the Soviet Union, however, there was never going to be a question of the numbers of people or the numbers of things, whether it's nukes all the way down to AK-47s, which are maybe still the most prolific small arm that there is on the face of the planet, right? So it's never a question of do the things give us our true warfighting capability. This gets down to, to the question that you asked, why are people the most strategic, of most strategic importance? I would say not just to the Marine Corps, but also to our nation. Um, for the Marine Corps, it's the Marine with whatever technology in their hand that's gonna win the firefight. And you don't win wars without winning firefights. Likewise, you also don't win wars without winning battles and battles to win. So we get down to where the decision makers are at. We get down to where the real 
impact of the human system. That's that's the that's the head to toe of each one of us, right? Whatever technology we put in our hand is going to be irrelevant to the quality of the person that must employ it. Whether that's in a future concept or a new concept of war or not, whether it's enabled through AI or enabled through machine learning, for the for the known future, there's still going to be a proverbial human in the push the red button sort of flow chart somewhere. So what's the quality of that human being? That's something that is an advantage over our adversaries. I would offer that uh, we know that. We know that because even at the low end fight, the counterinsurgency, the VEO fight, which which I know is hard for some folks to hear, that's a low end fight. I'll, I'll give you an example in a moment. I'll cut off my answer in a moment for a purpose because we'll get back to some more of it. But at the end of the day, operating at the high end requires innovation. It requires thinking. It requires decision-making. It requires, it requires subordinate unit leaders or subordinate leaders down to the, you know, fire team leader, maybe even to individuals that can see, think, and react and employ whatever, whatever, whatever technology or capabilities that they have. That doesn't, that doesn't necessarily happen in most of our nation state level adversaries. Uh, if you want an example, see what's happening in the in and around Ukraine right now. It's too early to find out what the end result of that's going to be. But at the end of the day, uh, there, there was a great article about June time frame. And it was an article from inside of Ukraine. It's not the commanders that are winning. It's the NCOs. We would call them staff NCOs and NCOs in our, in our makeup. That's why the humans are more important. They, they cut all of our technology. They're winning against a number two threat, maybe, to us. Uh, that's because of their brain. That's because of them, the individuals. That's why the human being is, that's why the Marine is more important than the, than the stuff. All right, I think that's that's a good jump into uh, the next question I'm going to have. And I'll do this, and then for those of you in the room here, I'll start looking at you to, uh, to get, uh, get some more questions going. But the... the the mental advantage, the, the quality of the human being overall, the quality of the Marine, uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about sort of where we are right now, which is at the PME institution um, for the Marine Corps, um, where our Marines get get that muscle trained, that brain muscle trained. So, uh, and there's also been a lot of, you know, outside of force design talent management, but the going back years looking at whether it's the national defense strategy, education for sea power, lots of different initiatives identifying um, education and sort of the cognitive realm as a place to look for advantage. So, um, so from, from your side, what does the enlisted PME pipeline look like today? What should it look like in the future under the talent management and force design efforts underway? And then what should it be doing to prepare Marines, in, you know, for the different steps of their career as they, as they go through it? Believe it or not, there's a very simple answer, but it's a very complicated question. And just for the listeners and for all of us in this room, uh, let's completely separate how we develop officers from how we develop enlisted. And here's the reason why. In our officer development, we build time to fully develop that officer. And there's some law that's associated with that. We don't need to go into that here, right? But, sir, you're a great example. Uh, you went to uh, career level school, right? Or you, or, you, or you will at some point in time. But we have a command of staff. We have an EWS. That's a year out of being in a unit somewhere, right? No unit goes without a major if you go to command and staff. There's no shortfall. You're not going to miss the opso to go to like uh, command and staff, right? And gap that billet. 
On the enlisted side, however, we are fully constrained by time. So that brings us into the conversation about how, how do we fully develop the enlisted force to compete, not in the future. The future is irrelevant. I think we got to step back for a moment in time and understand that our official like staff NCO level or, or, or PME began in the early 1970s. Lo and behold, why would you do that right towards the end of the Vietnam War? Because what we found was, is that there was something lacking, right, in the, in the leadership development, the capabilities of our NCOs and staff NCOs after particular, particular year we got involved in, in Vietnam, right? But let's just say roughly after, I don't know, seven or eight years of intense combat, we were lacking something. So we created these formal PME structures. Um, so where we are today, one, we're constrained by time. When I came up in the Marine Corps, uh, NCO school was eight weeks. Career course was, I think it was 10 weeks when I went, because I went here in, in Quantico when I was stationed down in Norfolk. And the advanced course was eight weeks. Okay, so let's call it roughly eight weeks each. Let's call it 24 weeks. There are currently only 22 weeks, by the way. It covers Lance Corporal Seminar, Corporal's Course, Sergeant's Course, Career Course, Advanced Course, uh, and the E8 Seminar which we can talk about that moment before we're going forward. That was only 22 weeks. EWS is nine months, roughly 36 weeks. So in the entirety of an enlisted Marine career, there required professional development. As far as education comes from 22 weeks today across every pay grade up to E9 or E8. So we're time constrained. Now the bigger question is what do you do with that time? Well, you can either put more in or take some things out or find balance. Hold that thought for a moment. Beyond the EH seminar, we had this thing called SEPME, the Senior Enlisted PME. Anybody have SEPME grad in the room? Any SEPME grads? Okay. Uh, Sergeant Major McDonald is a SEPME grad. SEPME is, was five weeks in and of itself, based in McPeepee, and then we surrounded it with some other other good to have information, which is all education is good education in this case, right? But a five week more in-depth, more professional version of what an EA should receive, first Sergeant Mass Art, as a precursor to becoming a Master Gunner and Sergeant Sergeant Major. Problem is it wasn't required. But it probably would have sent me. It was nice to have. We have we have, I just spoke at one this week, this who's going to E8 seminar. Okay. Uh, you've been to both. Set me or E8 seminar. If you had to pick one, which was the richer education, which one would it be? So, set me. So our requirement to go from master sergeant to master gunnery sergeant was a week long, maybe less than five days, conglomeration of seminars. We we were we got a week. That's better than nothing, right? So one of the things we're going to, we're advancing right now is taking set me and providing it as the E9 education precursor for the EA community. It may not be five weeks, there's some battlefield studies in and around DC or the trip to the museum, so stuff, but we will cut out of that. But to get to the depth of the curriculum, we're looking about a three or four week requirement at EA. Now, now many across the force would go, oh, we can't afford to let the master sergeant be gone for three or four weeks, the whole world will come to an end. Okay, then we're not talking about educating this force at all. We're talking about three weeks, four weeks at the most. The real, the real problem is time. And in a time conversation, something has to give. So what does the Marine do in this case? Let's take a, let's look at a sergeant for a minute. 
let's say it's an O3 because I, I speak that language. Does the sergeant go to infantry squad leader's course or infantry unit leader's course, or do they go to uh, sergeant's course? Which one do they go to? They would probably want to go to infantry uh, unit leader's course. Absolutely. Because, because that eight weeks and these five weeks, that's five weeks are a waste of time. We can't afford to let that sergeant and Marines go for, oh my gosh, 13 weeks. That's in a, in, a, in a three to one perfect dwell time world. We can't afford to let a sergeant get professional developer 13 weeks. And every company commander they have have just returned from being gone for a year, roughly nine months. Interesting. All right. And that sergeant's got about four years, four and a half years that they're going to serve as a sergeant. Okay. Now, there's a reality here that that sergeant's also a very busy individual. They've got squad to lead, they've got training to conduct, they've got whenever the ITX shows up or NWX, and if it's a mule, they have to go with time. Time is the constraint to developing enlisted force. Time is ultimately time is built into the development of our officers. So, what do we do with that time? One, we add some things to the front and back end, mostly in the case of enlisted on the back end. I just spoke about how we have this set me that's going to go out to the rest of the force. So there's a richer education at the E8 level. I will also offer to you that this year we just had enlisted Marines, uh, Master Guns and Sergeants Major compete for the executive education program. Same thing that our colonels and general officers go to when they go to Harvard Business School or they go to any one of these courses. I was slated to go to one. It fell out of the schedule due to my, my, my work schedule. But we now have a senior enlisted out getting this very senior executive level education opportunity. That's a way of developing this force, right? But it's an opportunity, not a requirement in this case. We also have uh, just completed our first round of the senior enlisted leader orientation course. That's for those senior enlisted. In this case, it's mostly command senior enlisted, the sergeant's major, but we also have master general sergeants that, that pair with the commander. They're working at the general officer level. We now have that new educational program. And you talk about how to raise yourself to the service strategic. Maybe, maybe we'll go joint in some of the CLOC conversation. But it's another, it's another enhanced program, about two weeks, that almost mimics the BG SOC or Brigadier General Orientation course in content and focus. What does it look like to operate as Title 10 general or flag officer versus just a colonel, I'd say just a colonel, but or just a lieutenant colonel as far as a commander? That is a, is a new improvement. And lastly, on education, for the enlisted, there has been this long discussion on, well, at the end of all of this required PME, I'm not having even discussed other than with the infantry the professional development requirements to be warfighters. We can, we can come back with a further on question what the difference is between EPME and like being a machine gunner going to advanced machine gun leaders course, right? By the way, they're not they're not distinctly different, they're actually contributory. Um, is is how we think about college, right? Academia. For years, there's been this, this magical sort of pot of gold at the end of a rainbow. That if you got done with your required EPME, that, that 22 weeks I just spoke about, there should be some sort of like degree in that thing. I would like to know the accredible institution that's going to let you have 22 weeks into getting an associate's degree. There isn't an, there's not, there's not, maybe something you see on like shopping network in the middle of the night, right? But there's nothing on this earth that's going to give 22 weeks of education that's going to result in an academic degree. Maybe some accreditation, different discussion. So, over the course of the last couple of three years, there's been heavy investment in a thing called the Naval Community College. I'll, I'll sit on that name as a follow-up, but there's a path, there's a path for Marines and sailors on the Coast Guard. So it's the Naval Community College. The Secretary of the Navy 
is the owner of the Naval Community College that, that has an accredited program specifically based in the Naval Sciences uh, that it will accredit an educational pathway from this. And by the way, our own university does not. The Marine Corps University does not have an accredited pathway from this. The Naval Community College does. So all of those things put together talk about the opportunity to invest in the development of our enlisted. Again, that's that's the professional military or I would even say marine education piece. There's a professional development piece we can talk about those special schools by MOS, the, the warfighting skill sets, skills, uh, in a later part of the conversation. But all that change has occurred here about the last probably 24 months or so. So all right. Great. So um, I'm now going to turn it over to those in the audience here, both virtual and live in person. Um, I'll probably just kind of go back and forth between in-house here and on, on the virtual realm as we get the questions in. And uh, we, we've covered a couple different subjects here, um, but don't feel like you need to limit your questions specifically to that. Uh, some of the questions in here are already kind of on different topics. Uh, but first, I'll open up to the room here. Uh, anything anyone got a question to start off with? Good afternoon, Sergeant Major. I'm Governor Sergeant Hum. I'm a faculty advisor with the uh, Staff and Seal Academy uh, in the Advanced School. To kind of go along with what you were discussing for enlisted PME and the limitation on time. Uh, we have a seven-week uh, course that we do for active duty right now, only two weeks for reserves. But in that amount of time, we piloted a new curriculum that started last year that we, we were able to uh, implement and change over the past few years to do the, uh, the responses and the, and, the, and the course critiques that we got from the students. And the results of that um, is, is overwhelming, overwhelmingly in the right direction, where we have students who are saying this is this is a great curriculum and a good direction. And just for pretext of, the, of what my question is, um, some of the things that we cover is uh, strategic level understanding of the development of force design uh, 2030 and specific to innovations. Uh, we have 176,000, 178,000 active duty Marine, and we have a, a large pool of, of uh, reservists. Uh, that's a lot of great ideas. But how do we get those great ideas up to levels that can make larger decisions? Um, and one of the ways and one of the means that we did that with the active duty is they do a SWOT analysis at the end of their capstone programs. Strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, but it's for the entire Marine Corps. And some of the results that we've gotten from the SWOT analysis from the students is, is pretty profound um, because we've invited, uh, thanks to just the, the location we're at, uh, we invite outside panelists to judge their final presentations, a product, a 30 minute presentation up to 45 with questions and, and challenges. And these guest panelists that we have come in, listen to SWOT analysis gun restaurants we're able to produce are things that are at OPT or even force uh, design 2030 level, but they were only given about three weeks to do it as opposed to months and years that, 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 uh, uh, that these other panels would have. Now there's a limitation as far as clearance level and, and what they're able to discuss, but the curriculum and the direction it's going is, is talking about influencing command, uh, uh, commands and, and finding value that each Marine, all the way down to the various lowest levels, um, and how, how we can get that feedback, that input up. And the curriculum provides a, a great forum for that. Uh, one last note is that also for Wargame, which there's a huge attention for Wargaming EWS and command and staff. Um, in fact, thanks to the Brew, uh, Brew Crewlock Center and the location proximity where, where our academy is at, uh, we were able to conduct the same war game that they, that they did for the command and staff the very next day with 43 gunnery sergeants from the advanced school. On the educational value that they got from that war game of seeing this large scale and how they brought that um, back for their essays or how they considered that for their SWOT analysis on, on larger Marine Corps concepts was phenomenal. And the feedback we got right away was we, we need more of this. 
Uh, to acquire that though, and to, and to get that, it's, it's been kind of slow going, it's been kind of challenging. Um, so the question I have, and, and moving forward, with, with how the curriculum currently that's in place, seven weeks, which almost seems with some of the suggestions from students is, is almost not even enough. And kind of like you said, we're, we're, we're tied in on time. Uh, what, what is enlisted education gonna look uh, moving forward when we have gunnery sergeants that are saying, we, we can handle more complexity, give us, give us more, we, we, we can handle more. Yeah, that's a great question. So this is a discussion. So all the all the all the owl stations don't don't start saying you know bad tweets and freaking Snapchats. Okay, from my, from our response, we have fifty seven percent latency in finish reports right now. How much time do you spend on finish reports in the advanced course? Well, I mean, that's, that's the starting process goes as soon as they show up. So you got seven weeks. It's about an hour in the curriculum. Same amount of time that we get a TBS, one hour. There's no more professional development of an officer or enlisted on finish reports than one hour. I will offer to you in an institution that, first of all, we're supposed to take care of our Wednesday got for their welfare. Conduct war games and compete with our senior officers is not a leadership principle nor is it a trait. If time is a factor and time is a constraint, your question is, what would I do? I would get rid of all that war gaming and make sure gunner sergeants understood the past. Not the answer you wanted to hear. Now, if the advanced school was nine months long, I think you should be probably sitting in the new war gaming centers getting built right here in Quantico and spend about a good month in that place. Given that the things and responsibilities that a gunnery sergeant, right, a gunnery sergeant needs to be able to do to lead an organization at the level of a gunnery sergeant, I think that's, I think we find ourselves challenged in some of those areas. I pick on that one spot, right? as an example, but here's where the time gets after us, right? What should we, what must we be able to do? What can we do and what do we want to do? We want to sit in a room and war game with colonels as gunnery sergeants, because we absolutely can. Problem is how many of the things that we need to do or must do to have that, that much depth in? Because remember, as we develop someone across the EPME continuum, by the way, CLOC also went to the War Gaming Center. That's, that's at that general officer level with the generals. Okay, they went, they went through that process, right? What does the gunner sergeant need to know? Let's, let's roll back. Let's use the sergeant's course as an example. Are you familiar with the sergeant course curriculum? Uh, yes, I'm ready. Yeah, there's an element. Are you all? Yes, okay, tell me about security patrol. It is, but you get a frago. And we might walk around Quantico in this case, like like I got told we did, where we at Mass Army, where somebody's walked around like a building and got the idea of what it meant to like plan a basic patrol route. Now you wanna know my sergeants, my, my, my career course, like evolution was to that, or the, my NCO school was, it was go to the army and get weapons, was go supply and get gear, because you're in a schoolhouse that has all these different Marines in it, right? now. My NCO school experience is prior to 9-11s, actually prior to Somalia, right? But the point is, is the butchers, bakers, cowstick makers, and everybody that's in, that all the other ones that are going to go to EPME, what they learn how to do is be a basically trained rifleman. So that when 9-11 happened and the FSSG was running up and down, you know, Route 1 up into Baghdad, they knew how to conduct fundamental war fighting. And that security patrol thing lasted about eight hours in a day, and you did everything from camouflage, cover, concealment, right? You did everything to actually employ a weapon system, at least understand what your left and right lateral limits were. Not to argue whether or not that's what we should be doing today. My point is, 
security patrol is still in the sergeant course curriculum as opposed to what other curriculum items that are in there. It's the first time a sergeant is going to learn to receive a fence support, is it not? How much time is dedicated to that fence support in the sergeant's course curriculum? We have a block. A block. But it's like, get in and get out. Plus, you have responsibility, is it not? It might be. Okay, let's go back to my question. And who, so what are we doing the career course on fitness supports? That's a unit responsibility, right? Okay, what are we doing the career? One hour. That's 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 a unit responsibility. Okay. How much time do you think is spent at EWS, command staff, Naval War College, or anybody else, anything else with a commander, or or here at the commander's course on how to properly record a Marine's performance on talent management and actually being able to understand the talent of the individual has one and only one thing outside JPEZ, which is the fitness support. We spend no time on it, as opposed to what? Time is the only constraint, not the desire for the curriculum that we have. So which should we have more of? What we may find ourselves doing, and by the way, we just conducted a Marine Corps-wide assessment on all of our curriculum inside EPME. And that was briefed to the Ed EDCOM Commanding General here, I believe it was last week or week before. And here's what the fleet has said. By the way, when we do education, do we provide what the fleet think we say the, the fleet should need, or we provide what the fleet says they need? How does that work? Now, now that we're all living in Quantico, we like to think that we have all the answers in the, in the, in the mothership, right? Because they can never know out in the fleet what it is that they need. So my point would be is, what we've gotten from the fleet is, we need both things, but in the right balance. Right now, they're out of balance. And don't pick on the security patrol or the fitness support as an example, but I would argue that if we're going to do anything right, the car should be tactically proficient in enlisted professional Marine education. Understand the form and function, Marine Corps orders, policies, procedures. We, we, talk, we talk orders and procedures like they're all broke and the processes are all broke. Don't teach them anymore. They're gone. We teach leaders how to think versus what to think. Okay, let's talk about uniform regulations. How many uniform inspections do we do inside of our EPME? And what's its correlation to combat? Because we want to go to war fighting. What's its correlation? You don't learn to do a pre-combat check or pre-combat inspection in combat. You learn by having attention to detail. The perception of the Marine Corps is we have pride in ourselves. We have pride in our institution, honor, courage, and commitment. And how we wear our uniform is a direct reflection of what the institution expects, what the nation demands, and how Marines are perceived strategically in their warfighting capacity. Because if you see a messed up Marine, that's a weak Marine. It's called a gap if you're a terrorist, right? And you want to make sure, you, but we don't even discuss that anymore. We assume that's a commander responsibility. Who taught the commanders and their leadership how to do that properly? Again, we should not get wrapped around too much around the inspection itself, but what is the output, what is the learning outcomes of the inspection? You do have to memorize orders and regulations. Just like you got to be able to memorize how to take that, those gauges, and make sure you have some timing on 50 cap. If you shortcut this, you have to shortcut that. And every every mishap I've seen on 50 cal has to do with poor spacing timing. Because yeah, it doesn't really matter how it's supposed to do it. We just, just got to get done. That's a reverse of maybe our, how we used to war fight. And I'll, I'll close war fighting on this. We should always advance how we develop the enlisted force. We cannot slow down on that. We have to understand what are some non-negotiable elements that every single Marine at every single pay grade must have in order to be an effective Marine Corps leader. That's what EPME's primary focus should be, number one. Number two, we have to also remember the last time we stepped off from nothing to something, 
sometime around after 9-11, right? We were pretty, we were pretty darn good at that. All right. Everything that made us good, most is gone in EPME. Let me plug the professional development piece for a second. In professional development, when we get into more transport operators, when we get into cyber specialists, when we get into the MOS critical, the critical MOS development opportunities, there's a lot to be done there as well. Again, time is a constraint for the enlisted force, right? But but those advanced technologies, those advanced capabilities, those have got to be implemented. The, the new concepts, I see the new conception of war. Where are we teaching teaching more than just like the class switching three ball theory? By the way, where do we teach that in EPMA? Classics. The whole foundation of Western military development comes from classics, right? Where is it taught anywhere in the enlisted curriculum? But how much? We had to stick it in there because we thought Klauswitz is great for guns to know. How deep are you getting in there? Like Klauswitz, right? The entire foundation of modern warfare, Klauswitz. It's like a 101 level class, like an officer development. But we got to get it in because, you know, guns can handle it too. Absolutely. If we had 12 weeks, 14 weeks, 16 weeks, we can get pretty dang on Klauswitz in there, right? Let me close by saying this. Everything we're doing in EPME right now is the right thing. It has replaced something else that was also right. What of the things we got rid of do we need to bring back more of? Because management of the force, understanding talent, appreciating the appreciating how we develop and understand our core, it's world finding competencies, those things, those are as important as future concepts as well. Just something to think about. All right, great. I'm gonna to go to uh, a virtual audience question here. Uh, it's, a, it's kind of a couple of questions. And this is switching gears a little bit. This is this is not so much the the, uh, the, the Marine Corps of Force. This is kind of more Sergeant Major Black as a person. Um, but it's from a one of our guests saying, who noted at your post and release ceremony in 2019 um, at 8th and I, he'd invited one of your drill instructors from your boot camp to attend. And they wanted to know what it was about that particular Marine that caused you to invite them back to that ceremony. Actually, there were two there. There was a retired Master Gunner Sergeant Santa Bossi works at Syscom right here. He was actually ROTC uh, MI in, in Quantico's ROTC until 19, I think it was. Um, and Sergeant Major retired uh, Jones. They retired out of two now. Why did I invite them? I mean, I've got trained a lot of recruits. None of them ever came to Sergeant Major Marine Corps. That's number one. So uh, if somebody, someday somebody one of my recruits becomes Sergeant Major Marine Corps, I hope they invite me. Right? Because, because, um, I have a unique boot camp story. My, my first team of drill stars got fired. Anybody's been a hat? Could probably figure out how that happened. Okay. And everything you could probably think of if you're a prior drill instructor or understand what happens in a recruit depot that would get a drill instructor fired, probably occurred in that platoon. And I got a couple of replacement drill instructors. One was the master gunner sergeant, one was the sergeant major. And here's what it's all about. And I'll tell a quick story and, and but it'll, it'll get to the punchline. I was the platoon guy when I, my previous drill instructors got fired. I got fired when the new drill instructors came on board. Uh, I was never the guy again. But they gave me a second chance. And if you can give someone a second chance in recruit training, if you can give someone a second chance in recruit training, the most stringent of probably environments that we have where, hey, is it right or it's wrong? It's the most black and white environment that we have in our Marine Corps, in my opinion. 
if those two individuals had not given me a chance, I would not have ever had the opportunity to become the Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps. So the lesson there is, is when someone makes a mistake or you perceive they've made a mistake, it's probably good to step back for a moment and find out. We got this big discussion on emotional intelligence going on right now, right? Why did the asshole cut you off in traffic today? Because they're an asshole. Well, maybe they're not. Maybe they're late to work like you are. That's why you're peed off that they cut you off because you're probably five minutes late to right so understanding how to just take a step back every once in a while was why i invited my two of my former drill instructors because i would not be here today had they not taken a second chance all right good thing much, sir, major uh, i'll turn it back to you yeah go ahead oh good afternoon sergeant major garcelle lenaris uh, advanced school faculty advisor um it's good to see you again sergeant major we have spoken a few words well, about sir and um sergeant major uh from that initial conversation um has stemmed uh some further on thinking in regards to the future of EPME. Uh, so my mom taught me a long time ago that what happens when you spell assume. And you know that led me down a rabbit hole to think about personal theories, isms, for, you know, for lack of a better term. Individuals' isms and their definition as to what something should be seems to be what we're doing that's missing the mark. Uh, for example, if you were to ask one person, uh, what's your definition of a sergeant, and you ask another person the exact same question, there may be some overlapping uh, common denominators, but the definition of both may be different if you're asking an aviation a pilot or you're asking somebody in the GCE. So uh, General Smith recently said, uh, we are collectively not doing a good enough job of communicating the virtue of service. And so I wonder if we are doing a good enough job of, of conveying the virtue of marining. And I think that that's where EPME jumps in, where CME jumps in. Uh, I think training is sustained through the education that Marines receive. So that training is when they go back to their unit. But I think CME owes it to the Marines as a whole that when they come here, they learn the of Marines piece. So when I tell people I am a gunnery sergeant of Marines, uh, it's through the pillars that I was taught here at CME. Then when I go back to my unit, we have TNR standards, you have your unit's METs that you can identify to that. Uh, my question in essence, Sergeant Major, is uh, I've been teaching with PP for two years, and a huge thing that a lot of people do is they skip the first step, which is problem framing. Everybody wants to go into COA dev and start developing their COAs. Uh, Albert Einstein said, if, if I had an hour to solve a problem, I'd spend 55 minutes uh, framing that problem in five minutes on a solution. And so with the development of PME, it almost seems like we're just developing COAs. And have we taken that step back to assess the problem and frame it properly in defining what each rank is? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I had this discussion about six months ago or so, maybe yes, longer. Uh, that's what spurred this core-wide assessment of EPME here at the beginning of the summer. Problem has been framed. And it gets down to what I mentioned earlier about what must we do, what should we do, and what do we want to do. The assessment, and I'll, let's not get into particulars, and again, I'd ask if they don't read too much into the PEZ and freaking, you know, classmates, right? But the pendulum is way far on what we want to do versus closer to what we should do. 
time is the constraint. Okay. If time is the constraint, then we have to ask ourselves, in the reality of the responsibilities of a gunnery sergeant, Marine, Marine thing, right? How many gunnery sergeants are going to show up to the Wargaming Center here and be an active member of the war game? Not that they can't, but in a seven week constrained curriculum, right? How much time must we invest on sitting in an actual war game? Should we dedicate to that if we are only allowed seven weeks of development? I don't know the answer. What the fleet would tell you is you're doing what? Because I need a gun that can do X. Okay. I don't right now have the answer to either one of those questions. I think that has got to be, that has got to be still worked out as we manage the time that we have to develop this curriculum. Right. But here's what is a fact it has gone too far in one direction and further away from this direction over here. Um, and I would openly admit it probably has been too far in that direction at some point in time too. Okay. Again, I, I have the, I'm a victim of time. I also spent eight hours one day in an alpha inspection in the career course. And if you had leather shoes on like I do today, you're probably gonna get a good score because you spit shot. As opposed to the authorized footwear at the time, which was core frames, either the chuck boot, you know, the high ones, or just a regular old core frame shoe, as long as it didn't have scuffs on it. Eight hours standing in a parking lot or by the university or where, where the where McSee is now, right? The old academy building. Hours in August in an alpha inspection. And at the end of it, someone said, Oh, you sweat through your uniform, fail. Now, staff sergeant black can't talk, or Sergeant Major Black can't talk the way staff sergeant black used to be able to talk. But there's a lot of profanity in, in that response later on, right? That's a penalty more too far that way. Okay. What does right look like? The problem's been framed. You brought up something that I think is very, very important for all of us to understand. There is training command and education command. There is training and education command. <laughs> Two commanders ago, a guy put out a really great document. It was 21st century learning, right? For all our learning. And said in the 21st century, learning is a combination of training and education. Yeah, we continue to bend the two separately and don't really get the most benefit out of what learning looks like. By the way, we should not be surprised that probably learning has always been a combination of education and training. But as we look about how we develop the force, the enlisted PME piece, which is what we're talking about right now, re-greening is a term that's been used. You go to an academy, you'll leave there being a better gunnery sergeant. You might not be a better communicator. Unless you understand better about how to lead your Marines, right? How to instill discipline and manage them, how to how to lead. I'm gonna put it in there twice for a reason, right? How to understand form and function of the Marine Corps. When someone asks you as a gunner sergeant or staff sergeant a question, you should at least be able to go, you should probably think about going to the one shot staff function. By the way, where is staff function ever taught in the Marine Corps? Anybody know? Hint, hint, it's not at the command and staff college. With always thinking about time being a constraint. We need to do more. We have only so much time. Let me, let me buttress this with it, just a, a quote. So the commandant and I last year got to speak at the Sergeant Major Academy. You know about the Army Sergeant Major Academy? It looks a whole lot like one of our officer PMEs. Pack your stuff, you drive away for like nine months, you PCS there, you go to school, every E-9, every E-9 in the Army. The year they get selected, they go to that academy. Some don't, but the majority of the year they get selected, they go. So the whole entire Army has figured out at a T2P2, several hundred 
several hundred, right, E9 promotees and send them to professional military development for one year. Nine months. We got off the microphone at Commandant Turner and he goes, we have something like that? I said, no, sir, we don't. He said, why not? I said, there's no time, sir. Because at the end of the day, the Marine Corps is different than the other services. We train, we deploy, hope to get in a fight so we can win it, right? But the Marine Corps is a, is a force of four thirds. One that just got back, one that's gone, right? One getting ready to go, and all the rest of us sitting out in the sporting establishment trying to get to one of these places, right? It's a much different dynamic. So time is always our constraint. What do we choose to do with the limited amount of time that we have? What's most important? There's your problem frame. There's the question asked, right? Great question, man. Thanks. And thank you because you, you got us here. <laughs> I want I want to tribute to you because you're gonna be up. <laughs> All right, we're gonna go back to the virtual audience here, um, and uh, I'm gonna, I'll do one more in here, and then I think I'll do one more in the room. And we'll take a look at the clock and see how much time we got left here. Uh, but this this is going back into the, the conversation about force design 2030 um, persistent conversation, and the question is, what's what's being done today, or what would you want to communicate out to not just the fleet today, but to everybody who's watching the fleet going through the process. What is being done to uh, to ensure one its implementation in its intended form, but also the buy-in from all the different pieces of the Marine Corps that are undergoing the change? Sir, great question. And I'll keep this one a little bit shorter. Again, I'm using my, my period of time in the institution to kind of lay it flat. So we have to understand why the Marine Corps is going through force design. We have to also understand that this is the not the first time the Marine Corps has gone through a significant shift. Uh, let's pick up three, this being the third. Let's talk about the interwar period between World War I and World War II, right? Let's talk about the late 1980s, right? Let's talk about now. There's probably been another period in there, but, but as far as history can tell, tell us, those are pretty those are three pretty specific significant changes. Let's go to the one I wasn't around in the war period, but if you've done no reading on the interwar period, you may want to and understand why the Marine Corps in particular uh, is so adaptive. It, even today with the, with the resistance to, to some of the changes, most of that resistance is gone, um, is understanding how much transformation occurred in the Marine Corps between the end of the First World War and the beginning, probably halfway through the United States involvement in World War II. And just see how much different the Marine Corps just completely did a, did a backflip. Let's think about currently. So, follow Soviet Union, 89, somewhere in like late 80s, early 90s. Depends on what book you read, right? Does anybody know the joint doctrine for how the, how the United States military would fight actually changed in the early 80s? The joint pubs on war, on, on how the joint force would, well, we didn't call it the joint force to have to go over nickels, literally, right? But at the end of the day, military operations other than war, Right, and low intensity conflict with documents written in the early 1980s. Lo and behold, it took about 20 years to actually operate in those environments, right? But our commandant uh, that, that we had named uh, General Gray saw that and he went through some massive changes in the Marine Corps. He removed the word amphibious from our vocabulary. As far as referencing Marine amphibious units, Marine amphibious brigades, and Marine amphibious forces, he changed that to Marine expeditionary. What does expeditionary mean? It means the end of World War II, all the amphibs are gone. We're not going to work. No, that's not what it meant. What it meant was the role and responsibilities of the Marine Corps, right, were different. How do you operate in a low-intensity conflict with a force made to fight a major attrition war with the Soviets? Was that feasible? 
I don't know, especially considering, and, and again, I won't, I won't speak out of turn here, but most of the U.S. military was focused on fighting in Europe against armored brigades of the, of the Soviets. Your question about that? No. Okay, so, so that's how we were arrayed, right? Because the adversary was in Europe, it wasn't in the Pacific. So as we think through that a little bit, that was a major shift in our institution. And, and we are living right now what I have termed in, in other discussions as my 1990s, right? The Marine Corps changed, uh, new capabilities came into play, training and education focused on that, maneuvering warfare became a thing, right? We convinced, I use the example all the time, you know, if I'm a third battalion, fifth Marines as a, as a machine gun squad leader, I've been trained that an infantry squad with Amtraks and reinforced by by combined arms being 61 millimeter, 60 millimeter mortars, 81 millimeter mortars, and CAT teams was going to overtake a Soviet triangle defense. I remember it like back of my hand, right? And that's called as maneuver warfare. Surfaces and gaps, getting the enemy's rear, disrupt communication headquarters, maneuver warfare. General Gray. We practiced that throughout the 1990s. Didn't know we needed it until what? After 9 11, low mold, it worked. So all of our senior leaders have not lost their minds. They are visionary. We are there again. So how do we convince folks of some of these things make sense? I think that the, the common answer is very, very clear. Here are some things. It's not spaghetti on the wall to see what sticks, but here are some things that we do know. We have a peer adversary on this planet. They have capabilities that we have not had to compete against in 30 years, right? How do we go about that? And it's not, uh, it's not like trying to, you know, cross the Ardennes, you know, battle of bulls. It's not going to be the case now, right? So how do we do that differently? One, we have to be a, a thinking enemy to, to our adversary. So we have to be able to think. I would argue that we know how to think already. We can always improve our thinking, right? What capabilities do we need to do that? How do we distribute the force? How do we operate without being attached to screens, antennas, and having 24-hour surveillance of the battlefield in real time? How do we do that? I am comfortable in my development on how to do that because I never had all those things growing up as an infantryman, right? Now we have all these things and we can't let go. How do you develop a force that can operate in a degraded environment? How we get the force to buy in? Understand this. There is no one almost in service today that has any memory of when we had to compete against a peer. So, so all this confusion is based in forgetting our past and we don't need to know how to do those things and you know, we don't need armor anymore. Uh, not the case. It's how do we prepare ourselves to fight against an adversary? More importantly, how do we deter that adversary? That goes back to the strategic advantage of our human capital, us, the Marine, over the stuff, right? What does our adversary fear more? A rocket like they have or the person employing that rocket? If, if, if that's like the, you know, rocketeering is supposed to be a challenge to someone. By the way, we did a MEFX in one MEF back in 2016 or 17 when I was still out there that had already determined that the range of our adversaries' cannons, our gunpowder loaded like cannons, outranged anything that we had in the U.S. inventory. So let's talk about high march for a second, the relevance of high march. This is an example. We were already outranged, and here we are saying, you know, high march, shoot further than a freaking artillery. Hey, we should go high march. Uh, bad. I'm not sure. Otherwise, we'd still be like shooting pop guns at each other and thinking about machine guns and any artillery, right? Cannon was good enough. Smooth war cannon, Civil War, that was good enough. No, we advance, we get better. I'm all over the place intentionally because the complexity of the, of the, the operating environment is such that what 
what we have now is good enough for today. But the people that we are developing today, right, who are going to operate in these environments in the future are going to get better. Any gunner sergeant here, because I went to mass sergeant, any gunner sergeant or staff sergeant here is a better staff sergeant or gunner sergeant than I was. There's not a doubt in my mind because we have constantly developed the force, given the different capabilities over time. We just get stuck on which path we're going to wear this year. If you get the joke, you get the joke. We start OIF off with Alice packs. Seven packs later, we get the mountain rep we asked for. It's different color plastic brands, right? So we continue to we continue to advance. Rock. All right. I think we'll do one more question from inside the room here, and then uh, and then close things out. So we'll see. I don't I don't want all the questions to come from this corner. So does anybody before I throw mine out? Back seaters are open too. Okay. It's your show, but I'm the guest. So who you guys got? Sir, anything? Sorry, you go ahead and talk about uh, culture of the Marine Corps. <laughs> culture of the Marine Corps. That's a great topic. What is the culture of the Marine Corps? Anybody got an idea? Uh, lots of folks like to define, well, your culture is X. Hmm. What's the culture of the Marine Corps? What's the ethos of the Marine Corps? Uh, to fight and win, sorry, Major. Bingo. Fight and win. Anything that's not contribute to being a better fighter <coughs> and winner, probably superfluous. So when we try to define our culture, we are first and foremost a warfighting organization. You can look up warfighting. I think the pure definition, pick your, pick your reference, will probably suffice. So therefore, we should train the force to do that. I get asked all the time many culture questions. Well, you have, in the Marine Corps, you have a culture of X. No, I would say there might be a subculture that exists inside of our, our culture that we probably should eliminate if it's a derogatory behavior. Right? We should eliminate that subculture, get rid of it because it is not the culture of our institution. So much so that we're working on a draft right now of a document that's going to, in black and white, determine what our ethos and culture is. So the way as an institution can, one, understand what that looks like, which is what all doctors are supposed to do is give you a basic premise, uh, a, an overview of, of what you're supposed to be. It is an idealism. Warf MCDP-1 is an ideal, is it not? It's the ideal understanding of warfighting, right? With a bunch of stuff in there, allows you to kind of get out of the black and white of it and actually think through it, right? When we were trying to teach people how to think versus what to think, right? MCDD-1 was written to counter the, what you should think, right? And as a result of that, this document that we're drafting right now is going to lay out in pretty clear terms that, what the Marine Corps ethos and culture is. Every Marine is a basic trained rifle, not every infantryman is a basic trained rifleman. Not every female can't be a basic trained rifleman. Not every, all those things that challenge us are challenges to how people perceive our culture as a Marine Corps. Every Marine that graduates from crew training, officer cadet school, or comes to the Naval Academy is a Marine, period. And then what does that mean? I don't want to give out secrets, but ethos of our core is to win, to win. By following the rules of engagement, orders and directives, dot, dot, dot. All right. Well, hey, we got something to look forward to now for when that, that the document comes out. Maybe uh, we can talk about perhaps get you back on to, to go through that the best with our audience, time permitting, as we get there. All right. To uh, um, Sergeant Major Bach, any final words you'd like to share? Yeah. First of all, it's great to be a Marine. Well, <laughs> I, I'll tell you, 
So I'll tell this story and I'll let, I'll let this lay flat about what it means to be a Marine. First of all, to be a Marine is, is the greatest gift. Uh, each of us that are sitting in this room or those who are outside this room who wear the uniform of Marine do so with pride. Uh, if we do so with the understanding that there are many who wish to be like us and they can't. Either they didn't have the courage to do so or they tried and just didn't, they didn't cut the mustard. And that's okay because we are the Marines. That situation early on when I came into this seat, it kind of, it kind of lays the point. Here. I won't tell you where the group is, but assume that every place you go in the Marine Corps, you're going to be a boot, right? So I was the boot in this group when I became a Sergeant Major in the Marine Corps. So I'm in this, I'm in this meeting with all these other people uh, that I'm the boot. And uh, it's like a two and a half hour, like just like PowerPoint session, which was just monotonous, right? And so I had to talk clearly. So I kept raising my hand to answer questions. Well, I got something to say. I got something to say. I kept getting gaffed off. Right? I kept getting gaffed off in this group of other people because I was the boot. And we get down this two and a half hour or so session. And I get up, I walk over to the hatch in this room, and I just stand in front of it, put my hand, put my hand in front of it. I just stand there. And I was like, hey, wait, wait, hey, what's up, Black? Because you, when you're a familiar group of people, you call you by your last name. Hey, Black, what's the problem? I said, you know what? Y'all are going to die someday. They're like, what do you mean? Is it wrong going to die someday? I was like, what, what's that supposed to mean? I'm going to die a Marine and you're not. I opened the hatch and I left. And for the last three years of that group of peers, they know what it means to be a Marine because they're not. And Rock, all great Americans, however, because they did answer the call to serve. And here's where I would say the thank you to everyone that's listening, whether you're serving in some capacity in support of the Marine Corps or any of the services, whether you're wearing the uniform right now, you were called to serve. I think we have a national dilemma right now where people do not feel as though there is a call to serve our nation. And I think that challenge to us right now is a national security issue. So I thank everyone who serves or supports those that do serve, families, civilian, DOD members, whoever it is, supports the security of our nation by supporting our U.S. military. In particular, those of us that wear the uniform of Marines, Thank you for your service in the truest form of someone who probably has eaten some flavors of dirt or you ate my dirt at some point in time. Uh, what it means to those who understand. Thanks. And what I would also ask is find a reason to stay. Find a reason to stay. Our current situation dictates that we probably should not replace corporals with PSCs. We probably shouldn't replace staff sergeants with corporals. And a high quality Marine is someone who's been promoted, has been trained, has been educated, has experience and who the who the institution values values and we must find the mechanisms and the requirements to ask those individuals what would it take to keep you figure out what that is within within reason right i want a lamborghini too i'm not going to get a bonus for that so that might be a stretch okay but at the end of the day we need to probably value uh we need to value each other a little bit differently because that's how we maintain our competitive edge. Why retrain someone to do a job every four years that someone partially kept to get better? We must find a way to retain more Marines. And that's also a thank you to this group because the last couple of years, we have actually gotten a lot closer to meeting all of our retention goals. Now my question to the force is, I'm gonna thank you next year when you overachieve and retain more Marines than we're required. There's a whole lot of fallout to that on the accession side. We don't need to talk about here, but there's a lot of thank yous in there. I appreciate everyone, all the efforts you're taking, and uh, Semper Fi. And we're all going to die Marines with it. Right.
<laughs> All right, great note to end on. Sergeant Major Troy Black, Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps, thank you very much for your time coming out and talking to us and to our virtual audience and to those of you in the room as well as to those of you out there in the virtual world. Thanks for taking your time again to join us here on the broadcast. We'll have this up here in the next 24 to 48 hours. And uh, as well, we'll be posting. We will have an episode next week. We'll let you know what that is here in the next couple of days. So again, all of you, Sergeant Major Black, thank you very much. Thanks, sir. Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected.